Before we get started, I wanted to give a little shout out to James Cleveland, Julio Custode, and Marcus Lopez, all of whom are in the Drink and Learn Revelers, and all of whom requested an episode on Absinthe. So, here it is. Welcome back, everybody, to the Drink and Learn podcast. I am drinks historian Elizabeth Pierce. And I'm bartender Abigail Gullo. And today we are talking about the Green Fairy, <laughs> which I made it sound like spooky, but I guess... Well, well it is getting near Halloween. Yeah. This is spooky. Mm. I went as um, an absinthe fairy for Halloween one year. And then I got hired by a meeting planning company to um, serve absinthe at some convention gig. Like they knew I had an absinthe fairy costume. And it was like, I don't know, the day before I had to do this and I'm in the attic and I could not find the damn wings. And I was like... Crap, 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 crap. And so I sent out, it was either a text or it might have been an email. And like, you know, you live in New Orleans when you send out the email that's like, hey, I have to be an absinthe fairy for a job and I can't find my wings. Does anyone have some wings I can borrow? And the answers you get are, what colors would you like? I have blue and green and silver. And, you know, like, (laughs) it's not the wings. What are you? What are you, crazy lady? It's wings. Yeah. So many <laughs> wings. Here are your options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then I got annoyed at this job because people kept saying things like, um, "Oh, am I going to hallucinate?" And after a while, that's just like very boring because they just said and the you same had, thing. Uh, got bored after one night of people doing that imagine being a bartender and having people do that every night (laughs) (laughs) right especially if you're working at um an absent themed uh place establishment yes there's one quarter the 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 absent bar where everyone dresses like a pirate Yes, um, that almost shut down because it was operating under not the right license. And then the city of New Orleans gave them a reprieve and then everybody was very happy in, um, in, uh, in Pirate's Alley. Yeah, I went there the night that there was like a big celebration and they kind of took over the whole alley because everybody was so excited that they... An absent celebration? No, there was... I mean, I'm sure some people were drinking it, but it was definitely not free. Mm -hmm. They weren't just like doing absinthe laybacks, which sounds like a bad idea anyway. Very bad idea. Unless you got worms. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people ask me um, whenever I do a Sazerac talk and I end up, you know, and I talk about how absinthe was originally used as a rinse. And then I have to go off and explain 
about absinthe and there's all these um, beliefs, conceptions, and misconceptions about it. And I really want to recommend a book that is called Hideous Absinthe, A History of the Devil in a Bottle by Jad Adams. Well, it's J-A-D, so I'm assuming it's pronounced Jad. And really, it is this very interesting look at the intersection of what we could call counterculture in France in the 19th century, when you had artists like Picasso and Degas and Manet and who are painting in ways that are not considered, you know, appropriate by the academy. And then you have these poets like Baudelaire and Verlaine and Rimbaud who, be, you know, they're like the poet has to like live to the extreme and, and, and they all end up drinking absinthe and I'll tell you how that happens. Then there's like prohibition and temperance and it's, it's really, it was, it was dense. Like, um, it, it read quickly, but it like covered all this really cool stuff that, um, you know, you know, I like all that kind of stuff when, mm-hmm. when it's like culture and history, but explained through drinking. Um, so I, I will put a, I'll put a link in the show notes, but, um, I, I, I think it's such a wonderful way to learn history because, uh, the, the traditional way of, of teaching history kind of is is very deeply flawed, as we know. It's kind of written by the victors. It doesn't really have a good point of view. It doesn't take into account the cultural experiences of, you know, uh, of, of a wider variety of people. And so telling these stories through the lens of, uh, of alcohol or through the lens of art or architecture or anything, um, you're getting a, a, a more in-depth uh, and well-rounded view mm-hmm. of of a historical time period. And, you know, that kind of critical thinking may help you understand our own period that we're in as well. Um, yes. Or it can just encourage you to follow in the path of Rimbo and uh, Verlaine and get completely hammered and not have to confront reality, um, which well, I'm also... Not Rimbo because he loved to so. <laughs> That's how I want to go. Sorry. That's a <laughs> Wait, that's a what? Um, there's a song called Verlaine Shot Rimbo. Oh, and that's right. He did. So Verlaine had it bad for Rimbo, and Rimbo was not nice. Actually, Verlaine, none of them were. But they pushed the boundaries of um, what art could be or what was considered acceptable um, okay, wait, so, so, so let me do that very quickly, and then we can get to the drinking part. Yeah, yes, and can you give me a, kind of a, a better look at this history than Baz Luhrmann did in his uh, film uh, Moulin Rouge? Yes, although the author gives some props to um, how it captured the sensibility and relationships among the artists and denizens of... Um, these theaters, but don't look to it for exactly his total historical accuracy. Okay, so wormwood has been used for centuries for various health 
benefits, whether and and the wormwood, the wormwood in English, um, actually it comes from um, an Anglo-Saxon word that means like man inspiration or something like that. So, so it's not. It it doesn't come from worms, like the the root the root of the actual um, uh, root of wormwood. Um, but for a very long time, people used this. It's a it's a bush that has um, leaves that can then be um, steeped in water and to make like a tisan. And then, um, and also was very bitter. But there were lots of other products that it would be kind of grouped with. So it wasn't seen, like it's key, that nobody thought that it was evil or anything like that. And they thought that it was medicinal. And it was seen as medicinal like a bunch of other things. Um, Occasionally, it might be mixed with wine. So it would have a little potency. And then eventually you will get to distillation becoming um, a thing and distillation of herbs, but lots of herbs. Uh, again, wormwood is not um, is not seen as something particular, special, or, or notable. It was something that was very common. Like in, there's one, there's like an encyclopedia where somebody's like, I don't even have to define it. Any boy who can eat an egg knows what wormwood is which is a very bizarre way of saying like any old person, like <laughs> can you, boy, you can eat an egg or like as, as far as like the Joe Schmo, I never, I've never <laughs> been like defined by egg eater. Um, but one of the, uh, one of the ways that, um, that it was used was in counteracting um, various effects of tropical disease. And so it was used by um, by the French when they began co- conquering Algeria. And so this is in the early 1800s. And so this is like Napoleon III, and there's going to be a new empire, and France is going to be awesome. So soldiers were given this wormwood mixture and they were supposed to drink it to like help stay healthy, but it tasted disgusting. So they would mix it with wine. And this habit of drinking this bitter concoction um, becomes associated with these victors, these military victors. So when it comes back in France, um, in the late 17, early 1800s, you begin to have um, absinthe distilleries making this product and it's expensive okay so that's key so it's for the bourgeoisie who want to be associated with like military victory and there's um le verre ver. my french sucks it's the green hour and it was always longer than an hour and people would go uh-huh. to these cafes and they would have absinthe and they were there was no fancy equipment you only no. added water the end. Yeah. Then it's very uh-huh. similar to like how I mean, what's the difference between at this point in history? What's the difference between people enjoying absinthe with water 
and enjoying like the cars with water was just like yeah exactly exactly like it's it's not seen as um uh I mean, well it's sort of like the th- it's a thing um it's, that yeah. people are doing but not in um uh yes you're right it, it isn't uh it isn't like this super well so there aren't particular rituals associated with it although um you did have to like know like people would there would be comments about if you knew like the right amount of water to add and then some people they would like take the pitcher and they they'd um pour it from high above so it'd be like a little ship um and And, and we should point out to our audience at home if you You've never tasted absinthe. Um, it tastes like um, black licorice, mm-hmm. and it is like a digestif. And just about every culture in the world has some sort of liqueur or spirit that tastes like this because it is a very common kind of digestif, kind mm-hmm. of helps you upset tummy. So, you know, Italians have Sambuca, and the Greeks have Uzo. And you can go back probably thousands you know to the beginning of distillation to to find cultures that that use this flavor so absinthe doesn't grow out of out of anywhere it's already an established flavor it already has been used um all over all over the world wherever there's distillation because it does add in um digestion and so yeah and the yeah. and the anise flavor does not come from wormwood. Just to be clear, no. the anise flavor comes from aniseed. Um, the wormwood and other bot- botanicals give it the color, and it's distilled at a very high proof, which keeps all of these um, chlorophyll com- compounds kind of in stasis. So that's why it's that very very pretty green. A very specific mm-hmm. green, and then when you add water to it, it it creates an effect called the louche effect, L O U C H E, and where it gets cloudy. Um, but you were meant to dilute it because it was very high proof, and um, but you're only diluting it with water, and so there's like alleged alleged benefits, but mostly it's to be associated with this like French military victory cool kids stuff uh-huh. then there's this terrible disease phylloxera um which is an aphid that kills the uh roots of the grapevines and suddenly there's no wine or what wine there is is expensive um and what's tied into this too is any jobs that would have been associated with winemaking, and I mean, in France, that would have been a whole lot of them. So now a whole lot of people are out of work. So they're poor and there's no wine to drink. And what emerges are other distilleries that are making super cheap distillate and flavoring it and calling it absinthe. And it had wormwood in it, so like technically it was absinthe. And a whole new slew of people begin drinking absinthe. And they are not the hoity-toities. They are bohemian artists and poor people. 
and they drink a lot of it because they don't have any money and it's like all that they can afford to drink and life is hard so you anesthetize yourself to it and so now it's becoming a problematic because you have all of these bohemians and artists who have these very radical ideas about society and they're drinking absinthe. So if you're a bourgeoisie, Richie Richie, and you still want to drink your absinthe, then you need to make it fancy. And that is mm-hmm. where you get all of these rituals that everybody thinks that you have to do them now. And you want to like talk a few, talk a few, um, how people think that there's only one way to have absinthe now. Well, it usually involves the special equipment, the beautiful glass, um, what they call an absinthe fountain, which is misleading because no absinthe actually goes in the fountain. It's just a beautiful, intricate, basically water pitcher with spouts. And the spouts you open and you could control the drops of water that go and dilute your absinthe. And a lot of times those um, drops of water sometimes go over a um, spoon that has a sugar cube on it and that water acts to like kind of melt the sugar cube but then you uh, it is called an absinthe spoon you eventually drop it in and you mix it around and then somewhere along the way someone got the idea of lighting of putting some absinthe on that sugar cube and then lighting it on fire yeah um and that really doesn't add anything, I don't think, to the flavor, except for maybe a little burnt sugar, but it doesn't really, like, doesn't burn long enough to caramelize the sugar. All you're doing is kind of burning off some alcohol and showing off the high proof of the absence, which I can imagine maybe some of the meat of that is proof, right? If you have mm-hmm. a lot of poor quality absence around, you're going to need to look, this is good high proof, high proof. Uh, proof quality absence because look you could light it on fire so that you can imagine that maybe that's how that tradition got started and um and yeah and then it's just you know you could kind of add water as you go and the absinthe fountains were you know a nice thing because you could get a fountain and like sit there uh with your friends and you know all kind of have your drinks together be able to dilute them um, there was bars that had built-in fountains into the bar as well. Um, there was some in New Orleans, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, the old the absinthe, old absinthe, absinthe, house. Old absinthe house. Yeah, yeah. which is not so, where it is now. It was moved. Yeah. yeah um, but uh, so you have. Oh, I, so anyway, I didn't know any of that part, and I thought that was very interesting. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting is that of. The artist, so it's Manet, M-A-N-E-T. Manet is um, arguably one of the first uh, painters of the modern age. And he paints a picture, a a portrait of um, someone drinking absinthe. And he submits it to this, um, uh, this annual show. And... It's booed and people are horrified because like you're painting degenerates and you're not, you know, this is still kind of coming out of the idea that art is supposed to uplift us and inspire mm. us, right? Um, and then it's like not admitted to this show. I'm getting a little of my chronology off. So all you <laughs> art historians out there just like 
um, I'm sorry about that part. But anyway, they aren't admitted. And so they create the Salon de Refuge, the, the, of the refu- like the refugee salon. Um, so it's uh-huh. all of the, um, it's all the artists who were turned down from the like classic salon and then they're like screw you we're gonna have our own art show and of course they're all the people who become super famous and like become impressionists and Monet and Degas and all those folks are there um so this is like this is the wave of the future right like this that was the old fuddy-duddy um conservative stayed um class very classic idea or con- yeah conservative idea of, of art and its function and then you have all of these people who are questioning what can art be and what does it mean to be an artist and some of them are real jerks um because they're trying to like not live they're they're very much the like 15 year old who's like screw you dad I'm going to get my leather jacket and get on my motorcycle. Like, it's a very James Dean kind of attitude, I think. I'm not very familiar with all of his oeuvre, but you know what I mean. It's like this idea. Yeah, no, they're, um, uh, you know, young kids uprising. We uh, we kind of all go through that period, I right. think, a little bit. Every generation does. The one everyone thinks about is is the boomers only because they were a big generation. But even us little generations made big impacts with our uh, rebellion. But I think we can also learn that you can be rebellious and you don't have to be a jerk to everybody around you. Um, particularly, uh, it's mostly men who seem to be jerks to their wives and, ch- and children. Um, uh, but one person who was not a jerk to his wife, because he didn't have one, um, because he he liked prostitutes instead was Henri Toulouse Lautrec, and I uh, I wanted to make sure that I shared this with you, Abigail, because so this is now mid eighteen hundreds, and cocktails are in full swing in America. It is like co- cocktail golden age, right? But yeah. cocktail making is not a thing in Europe really no um they drink wine or you drink an aperitif or you like you drink the thing but Toulouse Lautrec um Toulouse Lautrec really liked making cocktails um and he actually he describes drinking absinthe as having a peacock's tail in the mouth which I thought was very evocative um but he makes a cocktail and there's no proportions and I'm challenging you um to not you don't have to do it like right now but like think about it and you can you can like post it in the revelers so he made a cocktail called the maiden's blush and it had absinthe mandarin which i want you to talk about what that what that would be bitters no specific kind red wine Mm -hmm. again we Mm -hmm. don't know exactly what what kind and champagne but first of all, it'd be very pretty, and yeah. um, and I'm wondering what it's served in, and what would what is the mandarin? Do you think? Uh, it, is it is it some form of orange liqueur? Do you think that was my guess? But um, but all it says is mandarin in the book. Is he specifically talking about the juice? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, he seems like a guy who's not putting anything non-alcoholic in his drink. That that I, I would think that wouldn't be too common at that mm-hmm. time to yeah. have like cocktails, although they did exist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, perhaps Mandarin was a kind of local, kind of homemade um, triple sec that they had. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. I, I might do a little bit more research about this. But I'm already envisioning it and envisioning the proportions to make it delicious. And, you know, with a name like Maiden's Blush, you kind of already even know what it looks like. Yes, we know that color. Um, mm-hmm. So it coincides with... Um, this uh are these artists drinking drinking absinthe is there emerges obviously there's backlash and in the united states there's the temperance movement which basically believes that all alcohol is bad but in france what i thought was really interesting is they basically think wine is like mother's milk nobody's getting rid of wine um Mm -hmm. and so the idea of alcoholism is something that is, is is as a concept, right? Like as an as an idea, as being a sickness, is something that is emerging in the nineteenth century, and there is a very strong case that is made for absentism, and that it's absinthe that is like causing the downfall of um, a whole swath of the population. Of course, there's no mention of the fact that all these people are out of work and they're miserable and that's why they're drinking. Um, but uh, so that that is like the, the beginning of the backlash to um, that it's like associated with degenerate behavior, but that possibly the degenerate behavior is caused by this one particular... Um, beverage why so why do you think they targeted absinthe out of all of the alcoholic things they could have banned is it because it was at its most popular is it because it was associated with these hoodlums i think it was a lot number one associated with the hoodlums number two Uh super high proof and the hoodlums like um baudelaire and well maybe not baudelaire uh who was it um, Verlaine and Rimbaud were notorious for drinking it straight. Bad idea. Um, Terrible idea. And it's super cheap. So you have um, lots of the population who are drinking it. And this is this is a thing that happens in America as a result during Prohibition where you have all the titans of industry who, like Henry Ford, well, he was a teetotaler, but like, Carnegie and those folks weren't Rockefeller um but they didn't like all of their underpaid overworked uh workers getting drunk on Sunday the only day that they had off and coming to work hungover or missing work or not being as productive as they could because they were drinking um so there's this idea that it's connected with degeneracy and in the meantime, um, Germany has been emerging as a new global power. And France is worried that uh, apparently, like this was actually, a, a, this was true, that they were hardly able to like fill the army because they had babies who were born to um, women who drank absinthe. Um, which we know is probably a very bad idea. Um, and then they were weak and like what's happening to France's children. And, you know, so, oh, oh, but yeah, total degeneracy and gay. Gay people drank absinthe. 
apparently that was a thing. <laughs> like huh. it was, it was whatever was not okay, uh, or whoever was considered not okay. Um, that was all associated with absinthe consumption. Prostitutes, homosexuals, bohemians, whatever that meant, artists. Ugh. Um, ugh. <laughs> so they were all the same, and they're they are not behaving in the appropriate conservative uh, traditional way. And finally, all the winemakers go oh, after absinthe yeah. because they had lost a lot of market share um, when during the phylloxera epidemic, and then they want everybody to to drink it. Um, uh-huh. And so it basically, World War One, uh, like around that time, will kill uh, kill off absinthe. Particularly, there's this guy in Switzerland who he drinks he drinks a lot. He drinks like cognac and wine and some other stuff, but he also drinks absinthe. And he uh, kills his family, and his lawyer pleads that uh, it was the absinthe that made him do it. And he doesn't um, get off like he's he's sentenced, but he isn't sentenced to death. It's commuted because of this um, because of the absinthe. He actually hangs himself. It's very sad. It's a whole sad story. Oh. But um, like it's like that's and that's it. <laughs> and then they're just getting rid of absinthe. The yeah. end. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, um, what I think is interesting and I thought you could talk about is absinthe makes its way to the United States and it becomes a thing in the improved cocktail, you know, kind of back bar um, department. And other than the Sazerac, um, what were some ways that Americans would have been drinking absinthe besides just as like, you know, drinking it by itself? Yeah, no, this is, um, uh, this, this absence becomes a tool that, uh, mixologists in the, in the mid 1800s started using in their cocktails very much, uh, like how they would use, um, curacao or how they would use maraschino liqueur or how they would even use bitters. It was usually like in a dasher on the bar and you would add it to cocktails to give that little herbal flavor. You have a lot of drinks, you know, like the Sazerac is rinsed. Uh, with absinthe, um, you have a drink, uh, the Corpse Survivor Number Two, that is rinsed with absinthe as well. And these these show up in quite a few drinks. Um, you also had it as a modifier. You know, like you said, if you ordered a whiskey cocktail, which would basically be an old fashioned, and you ordered it improved, improved meant you um, besides bitters, you also added you know a dash of curacao, a dash of maraschino liqueur, or a dash of absinthe. Or maybe even a dash of all three. So at this time, you see absinthe just being used as like another flavor tool. Uh, and because when you are dealing with something that is high proof and highly flavored and very concentrated, um, it does kind of act like a bitter in that it's going to give a nice big pop of flavor to your cocktail. Yeah. And and and, and subtle too. Like um, so, I don't I don't particularly like loved that flavor i don't sit around eating black jelly beans all the time however i do really really love what a couple dashes of absinthe or a rinse of absinthe does for a sazerac for a corpse survivor number two 
I think it's um it's it's uh it's beautiful and and floral and fragrant and green and yes a little bit of that kind of licorice flavor but it's it's really really mild and it complements all the other flavors in the cocktail so well. Yeah, it is it is interesting what that little bit does, you know. It, um I I am with you in that like licorice is definitely not my favorite flavor either. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, but I have been surprised when, um, you know, it's like basically Sazerac is (laughs) an old fashioned and then you add, you know, then you have this rinse of, of, um, absinthe or herb saint. Um, and it's a completely different drink. It's so different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would encourage, especially for those of you if you bought a bottle of absinthe or absinthe or, past- or pasties or whatever to make a Sazerac or to make a Corpse Reviver or to make some specific drink um, to uh, put a couple of dashes in something else and just kind of see, you know, like see what it does. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to add lots of water to it and drink it. Like I, I love, you know, I read A Year in Provence and I just had like old... Frenchmen playing petanque all day with glasses of Ricard and water, milky glasses of Ricard and water in their hands all day. Just sounded lovely. Like it's how I want to spend my summer. Sometimes I'll pour a little absinthe and then a whole bunch of ice water, like maybe just like one finger of absinthe in mm-hmm. a tall glass ice water. And it's actually a super refreshing kind of little treat in the when it's super hot in the summer. There's something clean about it. Yeah. So one of the um, the drinks that's kind of like that, except it's a little more got a little bit more going on, and it is a drink that seems to be uh, have been invented in New Orleans, and that is the absinthe frappe. Mm-hmm. And there was a bartender, Cayetano Ferrer, Ferrer Cayetano Ferrer, mm-hmm. at the Absinthe House, and. Um, just wanted to okay. I'm I'm gonna read these lyrics to you. Um, but at the end of the this episode, I'm going to I'll put the full lyrics in the show notes and I will attach this song because this guy, um Glenn McDonough, who went on to write uh the Wizard of Oz, like words for the musical the wizard of oz well it says the stage play stage musical so i don't know if the person who wrote the one the songs for the film that judy garland's in is different but anyway so there's a song called absinthe frappe written in 1904 and it is celebrated as a hangover cure and the lyrics is it will free you first from the burning thirst that is born of a night of the bowl like a sun, twill rise through the inky skies that so heavily hang o'er your soul. At the first cool sip on your fevered lip, you determine to live through the day. Life's again worthwhile, as with dawning smile, you imbibe your absinthe frappe. Yeah. So, hangover cure. <laughs> A hangover cure. Well, it does taste like medicine, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, there was plenty of absinthe being consumed in New Orleans, um, and particularly during Prohibition. Um, 
Sherwood Anderson's wife, uh, Elizabeth uh, Anderson, in a she met a reporter at the old Absinthe House to talk about drinking in New Orleans. Um, she wrote in a memoir, there's a great deal of drinking among us, but little drunkenness. We all seemed to feel that prohibition was a personal affront and that we had a moral duty to undermine it. The great drink of the day was absinthe, which was even more illegal than whiskey because of the wormwood in it. And Bill Spratling, who worked at Tulane University, had bought 10 jugs of it from some woman whose bootlegger husband had died. And he shared his booty literally with his friends. It was served over crushed ice. And since it did not have much taste of alcohol that way, it was consumed in quantities. So, um, yeah, so among the many things we were drinking during Prohibition. And uh, it takes uh, kind of... a little bit of the fall of the Soviet Union and people going to the Czech Republic where it continued to be legal and then people start sneaking in absinthe to countries where it wasn't legal. So this is like the 90s. And then eventually laws are overturned and absinthe becomes legal. becomes legal in the U.S. again, I think 2007. Yeah. Yeah. 2006, 2007, yeah. yeah. It seems to ring a bell for me. Um, oh, but w- so one thing that wasn't addressed in here is that thujone is the thujone is the chemical that's in absinthe that is believed to cause hallucinations. Um, okay. According to this uh, author, all, science, all scientific studies have been pretty crap about the actual effects of thujone consumed in uh like the through the thujon that is in absinthe the amount that actually shows up when it's like made properly um and and nobody's getting a lot of funding for thujon studies in general so there's not a lot of um quantitative info about um whether it can make you hallucinate or feel like you're high or or whatever yeah, we don't we don't have the proof. It's all still story, and and you know when it comes down to it, alcohol affects everyone in different ways. And when you're drinking high proof alcohol and a lot of it, mm-hmm. and some of it may not have been made under the best of circumstances, maybe too many heads. Yeah, it will make you sick. It might make you see things, but um, but no, don't don't uh, don't worry. You're not going to hallucinate from a rinse of absinthe on your Sazerac, sir. Um, so speaking of, and with the Sazerac in particular, do you have any preferences, um, when it comes to absinthe versus being, uh, you having some of its substitutes used or, like uh, well, Herb Saint or know, Pernod or any of those? I, 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 I think Herb Saint is a wonderful substitute. I think it's a, it's a it, beautifully crafted, uh, liqueur. It's got great history with New Orleans. Um, uh, I, they're all like pretty close enough. Um, I'd say now that you can get legal absence, like why not get some real absence? There's different absence styles as well. There's, there's a kind of Swiss style absence that is more, um, uh, uh, white or clear. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, the French style absence, which is green, and in New Orleans, there were um, there they make a hibiscus kind mm-hmm. of red absinthe, mm-hmm. and apparently that is based on you know classic recipes. 
Yes, so, the, the um, um, atel- Atelier V is the distillery, and it's Toulouse Rouge. And he said that that was the, they didn't just make that up; that that was a nope. that was a thing. It was historic. It's historic. <laughs> there are historical flavoring flavors that come. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's really kind of some some personal uh, personal choice. There's this uh, great woman in upstate New York who made like a couple different styles of absinthe, like you know, in her kitchen mm-hmm. that were stunningly beautiful. And she kind of was a hippie herbologist, so you know that she really had access to a lot of you know interesting roots and herbs to really bring out all those good flavors. Um, yeah, the luge is pretty cool. I, I not enough people, I think, really enjoy that aspect of. Uh, of absinthe. It's funny because everyone's into that butterfly pea flower, you know, that turns everything <laughs> purple pink. And I'm like, well, you know, absinthe does that too. It's green and then it's, you know, it kind of turns cloudy, white. Cloudy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and cloudy. Cool. Is there a drink that you've made that you've used absinthe in, like something that's more modern rather than the... Oh my um, gosh. The- absinthe painkiller. Mm. A painkiller is like um, a pina colada but it has orange juice in it as well, and it also has fresh nutmeg on top. And there's something about absinthe and nutmeg that is crazy, crazy good together. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just added, like, a, uh, a pretty solid amount of absinthe. I, I can't really remember the recipe off the top of my head because I think I was batching it for the daiquiri machine. Mm-hmm. But I used basically a little bit of rum agricole, or rum, and then a lot of absinthe as, like, my liquor base, and then coconut cream, orange, um, pineapple juice. Um, and there's something about the kind of bracing or baciousness of the absinthe that cuts through all the fat of a of a drink like that. Like, I've seen milk And the punch sweetness, re- too, right? Yeah, like- sweet, yeah. And I've seen milk punch recipes that use absinthe, too. I've seen a couple, like, absinthe pina colada recipes mm-hmm. over the years. Um, and then I made that painkiller and I was just really pleasantly surprised by that. Cause you, you'd think putting all that together would not taste good, but it's kind of delicious and magical. If you like absinthe coladas. Dancing with a can-can girl. <laughs> oh, they were naked. Abigail, do you know the can-can ladies were naked? And then they wore underpants later when they became professional dancers. But the can-can, the reason it was so scandalous is because when they kicked their legs up, they didn't have underpants on. I, I, I didn't know if and underpants didn't, you know, were kind of... Like <laughs> bloomers, you know. Like, they were late, the late bloomers of the yeah. 1800s. <laughs> yeah, so people had, people, this is, I, I have, I in fact have a book on like the history of underwear, but it's like from a costumer point of view, also like mm-hmm. less cultural, but um, so uh, women would have like what they would call drawers, but it's basically like two legs that were split up the middle mm-hmm. Because if you had a lot of skirts, you didn't want to have to like hike up all your skirts and then pull down underpants because oh, yeah. that, yes, yeah. so there was, so they were split. Okay. So that's, but when the can can was originally done, no drawers at all, just <sighs> naked. Scandalous. Yeah. Scandalous. 
Absolutely. You can't even look, you can't even, you can't even do that on Bourbon Street. You can't do that on Bourbon Street. Yeah, you can't. You can barely get that in Vegas. Yeah. You have to have the bottom, the G string at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, okay, <laughs> divergent, but only slightly. <laughs> we, uh, we digress <laughs> thinking about all that French food tanani on display. Yeah. Well, how glorious would that be? Debauchery. A lot of debauchery. Oh. Um, yeah. Flavored with absinthe. Uh, so, that is, um, I mean, there is a, there was a lot to cover, but I hope that I gave, for those of you that are interested in such a thing, um, that I gave you enough of a teaser that I really, I really dug this book mostly because I appreciated how he looks at like absinthe is this thread going through all of these um, artistic ideas, and like he points out that there are some artists that like paint. They have like things that like get essentially get turned into posters and like posters for absinthe um, versus someone like Toulouse Lautrec or Manet who's kind of like capturing this scene um, and the absinthe happens to be there. Like the absinthe isn't the point. Um, but anyway, it's just this very interesting chronicle and looking at the shifting attitudes and worries towards it. Anyway, it was just very cool. Um, and I, it, I interesting because i think i think people um you know think that a lot of like the banning of alcohol had to do with just the the dangers of alcohol but to say that the banning of alcohol that with the dangers of a progressive movement that was happening at the time is really kind of interesting mm -hmm. and i said something that we could all think about you know if we could wrap our brain around that and, and maybe we could wrap our brain around what's happening right now with things and people being banned politically or religiously and um you know because they're trying to thwart a progressive movement well but and also what's worth noting is that like it, this and this was true in the united states that the temperance movement identified it's like they identified a symptom instead of the root of the problem um so rather than asking <clears throat> why do um, underpaid, overworked men take their wages and spend them all at the saloon. They were like, well, let's get rid of the saloon. Um, mm -hmm. And then there, I mean, there certainly were progressive people who were trying to like make, make the world a better place. But even some of them acknowledge like that it offers, this offers community, it offers a, a means of escape and we need to have something that can replace it. Um, and then they did not have a, they didn't have an alternative. So, you know, back, we're back. <laughs> we got the saloons again. Um, but it's like, it's that all of these issues are way more complicated. And that alcohol gets tarred with this brush of, it's just very easy to say that it's all bad. And while there are, um, you know, I mean, there are people who drink too much. And then make bad decisions and harm other people. Like that, that is a true thing that happens. Um, but there's lots of other things that are also going on. And if you're only looking at the alcohol, then you're not looking at the, at the yeah, the complexity of the whole picture. Hmm. Oh, I didn't even talk about how it was really scandalous when women were drinking it. 
extra when women were drinking absinthe that was also bad yeah but they drank it because you could drink a very like if you're wearing a corset you could drink just a little bit and then you get a nice buzz and you wouldn't um feel tight in your corset unlike drinking glasses of wine or beer think about Uh that too okay um I'm not going to have a part two of absinthe, but clearly I obviously I'm saying like there's a whole lot uh, to learn about to learn about through it. Coming from um, an, an, a visual artist perspective, um, if you and we'll post some of these on the website, um, some of the Art Nouveau posters advertising absinthe uh, with the where you could very clearly see the absinthe fountains and the absinthe spoons and the tube mm-hmm. of sugar. Uh, all have beautiful kind of naked women in it, like mm-hmm. the famous Robette poster by Henri Pivot Livemont. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the kind of the most famous one. Uh, but my uh, all of my personal like favorite artists kind of come from this time. This kind of graphic art mm-hmm. of the Art Nouveau and um, the Czech uh, Alphonse uh, Mucha was my um, was kind of my favorite. And um, I think somewhere he has. I know he's got like a famous poster for. They were artists, but they were also like the um, the madmen of their day because yeah. they did a lot uh, of work promoting everything from absinthe to bicycles to um, to fans to um, to theater. A lot of theater, you know. So mm-hmm. it really comes a lot of um, uh, a lot of my passion. Um, and these posters are, are really, really beautiful. So it definitely, if you live in New York, there's a there's actually a society called the Green Fairy Society um, that a friend of mine runs that is that still holds um, artist salons where they taste absinthe and they have different performance artists and visual artists uh, perform. So uh, if you are in New York, uh, I believe they've been doing virtual events throughout the pandemic as well. Please look up the Green Fairy Society and um, and uh, join that group of uh, wonderful uh, bon vivants because because uh, uh, unlike unlike the not so nice people from France, there are a bunch of great wonderful people. Well, um, I am in the middle of doing a renovation, but once I am able to easily access my costumes in the attic. I'll pull out ye old absinthe fairy costume and <laughs> put on one of their virtual events. And and I will definitely tell the revelers when I do that. Maybe we can <laughs> all have some kind of streaming. Yeah. Uh, and if there are any revelers in New Orleans and you need a spare pair of wings, I got extra wings. <laughs> <laughs> we should get. Oh, we should all get together for Halloween. The obituary cocktail yes. is a cocktail is absinthe is basically a martini with absinthe added to it as well and uh we could all dress up in our spooky or art nouveau costumes or green fairy costumes and and have a little halloween session that sounds nice yeah um well if you enjoyed learning about absinthe um then i encourage you to share this podcast with whoever you think might also learn enjoy learning about absinthe and other stuff um any of the other topics that we cover if you can rate and review us on apple podcasts that would be really awesome and if you have any questions you can um contact me at drink and learn on all the um socials and you can reach out to or you can reach out to abigail as well 
Yeah, on Instagram, I'm uh, my name, Abigail Gullo, G-U-L-L-O. And on Twitter, I'm at NYC, baby. And I mentioned earlier the Drink and Learn Revelers, which is the Facebook group where we share things uh, drinking-wise and drinking history stuff. And I'm definitely going to post some um, some of the images that Abigail suggested along with um, some of the... Uh, artists, they will have a smattering of all of the absinthe drinkers, none of whom look like somebody you want to bring home to mama, unfortunately, um, <laughs> for bringing that. Uh, and uh, also where we got the idea and the suggestion to do this episode. That, so is, you, that is right. Um, and don't forget to hang on till the end so that you can hear the absinthe frappe song. And which I'm totally delighted by. And just so you know, I'll put a link. If anybody wants to download the sheet music, it's in the public domain. And you can totally learn that song for those of you who have been learning piano or guitar or ukulele or whatever because of COVID. And everybody's (laughs) been learning new stuff. (laughs) If anyone has uh, acquired an instrument, um, then uh, yeah. My parents acquired a beautiful uh, Victorian um, house in rural Vermont, and they have a beautiful music room with a piano, and my dad's been teaching himself how to play. So uh, this is, uh, I'm putting you on notice, Ed and Eileen, the next time I come to visit, uh, download the sheet music, and we're going to sing about the um, absence breath egg. It's totally adorable. It's a really, really good song. Um, And uh, I guess until next time, cheers, y'all. Cheers. When life seems gray and dark, it don't know you are blue. But is they say on such a morn, one thing to do. Rise up and bring a bell boy call to you straight away. And bid him bring a call on top of sins it will free your past from the burning thought that is born of a night of the ball. Like a sun to rise through the inky skies that so heavily hung by your soul. At the first cool set on your fevered lip, you determined to live through the day. Life's okay, worthwhile, as with dawning smile, you invite your obscene friend. It will free you first from the burning thirst that is born of a night of the dawn. Like the sun will rise through the inky skies that so heavily conquer your soul. At the first cool sip on your fevered lip, you determine to live through the day. Life's again worthwhile as we don't in smile. You invite your sin That it is done, so waste no over yesterday. No sweat to shine a year or so, the first is 
remorse will pass, the fear will fade with sweetest way. Before a glass of rain, absent from air. It will free you first from the burning thirst that is born of a night of the bold. Like a sun will rise through the inky skies that so heavily hung on your soul. Are the first cool sip on your fever lip, you determined to live through the day. Life's again worthwhile as with dawning smile, you invite your absinthe from it. will free you first from the burning thirst that is born of a night of the poor. Like a sun will rise through the inky skies that so heavily hung on your soul. At the first cool sip on your fever lip, you determine to live through the day. Life's again worthwhile as with dawning smile, you imbibe your absinthe from it.